listeners. Welcome to Grief Out Loud. Remember the last time you tried to talk about grief and suddenly everybody left the room? Grief Out Loud is opening up this often avoided conversation because grief is hard enough without having to go through it alone. We bring you a mix of personal stories, tips for supporting children, teens, and yourself, and interviews with professionals in the grief world. Platitude and cliche-free, we promise. Grief Out Loud is hosted by me, Jana DeCristofero, and produced by the Dougie Center for Grieving Children and Families in Portland, Oregon. Hey everyone, it's Thursday, April 9th of 2020, and we are about a month into the COVID-19 pandemic hitting here in the United States. I don't know what it's like for you, but for me, it feels like just long enough to be adjusting in some ways and also long enough to be really grieving all that I can no longer do and may not be able to do for weeks or even months. And just like grief, the thoughts and feelings change, sometimes dramatically, day to day and hour to hour. While we've put out a few pandemic-specific episodes over the past few weeks, this one is an interview I recorded back in February, when coronavirus felt very far away and contained. So while the episode doesn't speak directly to what's happening now, the topic of how youth of color are often penalized in their grief expression, and how these penalties are rooted in systems of oppression, seems to parallel really well with the ways in which COVID-19 appears to be disproportionately affecting communities of color. The CDC, Centers for Disease Control, recently released some numbers this week, and while the data is just preliminary, it does appear that COVID-19 is hitting communities of color particularly hard. Here are a few examples. As of Monday, April 6th, in Chicago, where the Black community makes up 30% of the population, they represent 70% of the COVID-19 deaths. And in Michigan, There's a similar disparity where the Black community represents 14% of the total population, but 40% of the COVID-19 deaths. While there's no one or definitive reason for this disparity, public health officials point to higher incidence of pre-existing conditions in communities of color, which are linked to a lack of access to health care, and especially preventative care, and also existing discrimination in the healthcare system. So in light of these numbers, this episode with Dr. Tichelle Bourdais about Black youth who are affected by homicide and gun violence feels especially relevant. Tichelle is an assistant professor in the Department of Human Development and Family Science at the University of Missouri, and Tichelle's research, practice, and publications focus on grief and youth of color who are affected by homicide, gun violence, and race-based trauma. Tashelle, thank you so much for making time in your schedule to be part of Grief Out Loud today. I really, really appreciate it. Yeah, sure thing. Glad to be glad to be a part of it. Can we start by talking about your what's your personal connection to this work? Uh, my personal connection is that I am a product of New Orleans, Louisiana, <laughs> and um, the violent death rate has been astounding basically throughout my own adolescence and adulthood. I um, was always curious about issues of loss and in particular homicide loss and gun violence. I never was personally worried about it impacting me, but I had I have two older brothers. And so although they were doing well, um, I still knew that they were not exempt from any violence or danger that could impact them. I have just been curious about how people make meaning of losses when these deaths, deaths would occur because I watch people just move on. 
Um, I used to do weird things like read obituaries as a teenager. I, in fact, collect. I started <laughs> collecting obituaries of kids who were who died by violence. A whole box of them. I was just intrigued about how what information was put in the obituaries and not. And I personally knew a few people who died by violence. I I, I just also noticed that there was not a lot of support. Like people people would just go back to school the next day. And in my mind, I would always be thinking about what about the people who are impacted by this loss. Now, one in particular, if I might mention, had really probably had a profound impact on me. A kid who I grew up with was killed outside of his brother's elementary school. So not only was his death significant and a huge loss, but I, I was so concerned about the, the notion that his brother in an, was sitting in an elementary school and the gunshots he heard outside of his building was that of his brother's death and demise. So those type of events, um, they impacted me personally and then professionally. I, I just knew that in pursuing higher education that I wanted to be able to do research, further research on this, uh, and then also make sure that the information reached populations. I've always been both a researcher, but a person who who believes you always need to give back. And that's also just a part of my culture. African-American culture is about giving back. So my beginnings in research was my return to New Orleans and my continued return there to do research with youth in New Orleans and other areas with high amounts of crime and violence. I'm totally picturing like younger Tashelle cutting out <laughs> obituaries and, and wanting to know the story. And, and that leads to my other question around you know, there's a lot of talk in the news and the media about rates of violence and homicide, particularly in communities of color. And what gets lost in those numbers? Like, what's the context of this grief that we're not hearing about or knowing about? Yeah, I really appreciate that question, because it's actually a, something that's really challenging for me as a researcher and for other people who are doing this work is the stats have not changed for youth. For many, for many years now, we know that the, we already know what the violent death rate is. And we already know that Black youth and, and youth of color are disproportionately impacted as victims and perpetrators, yet we remain on that wheel. It's almost like sensationalized, right? Um, where, where it's like, oh, let me give, a, give you a shock value of, oh, this is occurring, and then, but where's the other piece? So for me, I, I kind of want to move beyond those numbers. And that's what my work is built around, uh, is telling the story you know, accompanying those numbers is the idea that um, this is occurring and then there's this just this myth or misinformation that uh, when youth of color, black youth in particular, who have the highest, who, who are more likely to die, most likely to die uh, as a result of gun violence and a homicide, that they don't care. There's this myth and, and, and misconception that, so there's this, I, there are two, two challenges in front of us. One is we, we're only hearing about the numbers we're not doing anything about them. Their experiences remain invisible and undersourced, under-researched, uh, underfunded, and these youth are not desensitized. They're simply, because, the, because of the ways that their experiences are invisible in the larger culture, because of the ways in which their experiences are penalized, their normal reactions get penalized in our culture, then they simply con are concealing reactions that will be punished in the first place, right? Uh, that they are more at risk for being penalized for. So understanding the context that black male youth and other youth of color just like youth in general grieve the losses that they are experiencing they may not be explicitly showing our cards because i don't know if culturally we're ready to manage them right mm. if clinicians have had the training that they need if, if we're actually taking advantage of opportunities to get what we need to support them 
So I guess what I, I guess in terms of context, uh, one is just that they grieve. Two is that they do need support and would benefit from it. And they are receptive to support and acknowledgement and recognition of their experiences. Um, and I can tell you that because I, in my research and programming, I've, I've sat with kids who have been labeled in all kinds of ways as, as the fighter, as the as the trouble one. And then I'm sitting with them in the room and they're in pain, excruciating pain. And some of their behaviors will reinforce some of their anger was when it was treated as something different. They took on that identity that was given to them instead of the identity of a person who's bereaved. They took on the identity and label that was attributed to them as the fighter. Right. So we we can have a powerful impact in how on how you tell their story and provide their narrative by giving them space to do that. So but we miss that gets lost when we keep seeing article after article that just talks about how much is happening and uh, have a reduced amount of information about how they are coping, what it takes for them to cope to. You know, we can't jump from we're not going to acknowledge your experience to this is what you this is their growth. You know, we're missing that middle piece of like what's their experience. How can we support them? Because right now they're surviving. There's not a lot of space for growth when you're surviving um, in a, because of the absence of so many different things. So that's just a piece of that. I, I could go on, but I'll, <laughs> I'll pause there. And I, it's a great question. It's the one that I, that I write about frequently is kind of moving beyond that. We know the numbers. We've known the numbers. What else? Now? The what else? What are we going to do now? <laughs> I'm really struck as you're talking about this idea that if we, we have these numbers, so we come into a community, primarily community of color, black youth who are experiencing high rates of loss due to violence, homicide. And if we have the image, we being me, this person thinking, oh, well, it's happening so often, they're probably desensitized Mm -hmm. to it. And so I, I look, not me personally, but like society looks at a behavior, uh, a behavior that we might look at another child who we think isn't desensitized and say, oh, this must be a reaction to their grief. They're having trouble focusing in class. They're arguing with classmates. They're uh, reacting to direction in a way that isn't working very well. And we think, oh, that must be the grief. But if we sit with a a youth of color and we have this myth that they're Mm -hmm. desensitized, we could easily locate the origin of that behavior in a very different direction. Yes, very well stated. And and I would say underlying the myth is a sort of dehumanization of black youth, if we're being quite frank, and I hope I can we can be frank in this conversation. Uh, really, it comes down to dehumanization of black youth, and we see that in research as well. Um, their experiences aren't even described as grief in a lot of different spaces and places and publications and trainings. Uh, it comes down to acknowledging our our beliefs about black youth. And um, you cannot see a black youth as grieving if you don't even view them as human. Or if our starting point is one in which we are already viewing them as deficient, deficit, being able to deal with pain. You know, that myth even transcends into the medical care system where black individuals, black men, Latino men, um, are less likely to be even given pain medication because of this notion of, you know, you're behind, you're beyond human. You don't need it you know, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so so we see that across the board. And again, underlying that myth is, is uh, marginalization. For most people, it's hard to see beyond our privilege because we don't have to. So people who are underrepresented have to understand the experience, the lived experiences of people who, are, who have certain privileges or access to things that everybody should have access to, just to make sure we're all clear on understanding what we mean by that. 
privilege does not mean somebody has a better life than somebody else. It simply means that the things that should be accessible to everybody are differentially more easily accept accessible for some. And school settings and, you know, outside of school settings and regular communities, understanding and first humanizing a person allows you at baseline to say, oh, I don't need to differentially apply what grief looks like. Every kid can grieve a loss. You know, that's humanization is said is understanding every child can experience a loss and every child who's experiencing a loss will express it in different ways. I just need to be paying attention to this child. And acknowledging that when they're reacting, it's not just because black people are aggressive, <laughs> uh, but because maybe this kid is angry because his three people were shot in his neighborhood yesterday, right? And it was just enough for that child to get to school today, taking some time. And oh, here's the other piece. This is so simple, Jana, too. Like most people just need a little a minor recognition of it instead of being put in the safe seat and penalized. And now you're taken away from math and science. So tomorrow your math and science score is going to also look different because you missed the lesson and you were further isolated when you were put in a safe seat because you were angry, rightfully angry, a normal grief reaction, or you look distracted because you were, it was a normal grief reaction, but you were labeled or you got five points deducted today. And then that just follow, follows you throughout your development, right? It, it, it creates a sense of disengagement for kids in schools, for families, for parents. Uh, and so I guess at baseline, again, we have to also look beyond the myth and what's kind of underlying it so that we can support our youth in these different communities. Yeah, I want to talk more about this idea of grief reactions being penalized. And before we jump into that, I just was thinking too of how this myth around black youth being desensitized to grief and that youth grieve in the context of a family and they grieve in a context of a community mm -hmm. and the idea around like the strong black woman also mm -hmm. and how interwoven that idea is. Can, can you talk a little bit about that and how that continues to cause harm in relation to these youth as well? Yes, absolutely. Um, well, here's the challenge. Uh, black women have had to actually exercise a certain amount of strength just to function in a broader culture in which black families, families of color, families who, who are not the majority, families from different backgrounds, different family forms, must differentially establish certain tools just to function, right? Just to make it to work in the morning, just to make it to school that morning, right? There are additional barriers and stepping stones to doing basic things. Um, historically, black women during the time of uh, when, when black in, people of African ancestry were enslaved, black women were released first from slavery. And so black women had to do a lot of things on their own um, in the absence of their partners. And so that that's kind of where that strength comes from. I don't know if it's as much a myth as it is an adaptation that was made across time for survival needs, right? But the, the challenge with having to do all of these things on our own are, are, are only within the family is that we see that black individuals end up experiencing more prolonged grief because of this notion of having to just keep going. And quite frankly, there is less space for processing. One, if it's not available in the first place. <laughs> so just like it's not available for black youth, uh, black women, black mothers, black fathers also lack spaces where people understand culture, where people will appropriately understand that a lot of the a lot of these experiences with loss and trauma 
also have race-based trauma interconnected with them, right? Any therapist, clinician who is sitting across from that person would need to also understand that any program designed for them would also have to incorporate that and acknowledge that. But it also leads to, we know through research that Black women in particular have more prolonged grief experiences because of this notion that there's not a lot of time to process. You have to get up tomorrow and go back to work, right? You have to kind of keep going because there's not as much space for Black women to slow down or stop to take care of themselves within a broader context. Or we would see more people doing that. <laughs> so that that's kind of a part of it too. But the strength is that you, you get to move forward. The harm is that grief is often prolonged, but it's also complicated by just everyday experiences with non-death losses. Uh, as you deal with the death loss, you're also dealing with the same things that people have dealt with historically, having their ideas taken, uh, speaking up at work, for example. So if you've dealt with, you're worried about your son while you're at work all day, right? That's the experience of the typical black woman and man, right? You're worried about all the things that could happen to him differentially in our culture, in a race conscious culture and in a culture that still has a lot of biases and demonize our black kids, kids of Latino heritage, uh, indigenous populations, um, while also going to work and knowing that if she speaks up, she's going to be perceived as the angry black woman. So it's like all day long. So it's complicated, I guess I would say. This, the strong black woman uh, notion is really complicated, uh, where there are so many other losses that are happening during the day that kind of necessitate the strength, yet it's also debilitating and it's exhausting for black women to have to exert the strength all day long every day. I really appreciate that distinction of, you know, not necessarily being a myth because it's a, a reality-based adaptation. And yes. yet, how does it continue to create limitation, obstacle, mm -hmm. and harm? Mm -hmm. Just children are also socialized to push forward, right? Um, I've done research with college students where they really should ask their professor for more time but it's just not a value. You don't ask for more time, right? You you get the work done mm -hmm. um, uh, because that's what you have to do in our culture to survive as a person who's underrepresented. You, they, they tend to not even, it doesn't even cross their mind to ask for more, but they should have. So sometimes it, they lose out, for example, because that's part of the socialization. So yeah, there, there are strengths and definite challenges associated with that. So another great, great question. Well, and moving into that idea of, as you're talking right then, I'm thinking like a less allowance. So maybe a less opportunity, less allowance for taking time off of work and not uh -huh. being able to perform at full capacity, asking for extra time from classwork or a, a professor, an assignment. And so there's this idea of, well, if I st step back from that even more to say, you know, we have this idea that grief is often not very acknowledged or talked about and that there's not a lot of space for grief reactions across the board. But then going back to that idea of for black youth, when they are expressing grief, not only is there not space or acknowledgement, but there's they're getting penalized for it. Can you talk a little bit more about that idea and, and if it relates to the term that you've written about and talked about of, of suffocated grief? Yes, uh, absolutely. And also, first, I want to acknowledge that, again, kids across the board should be supported much more than they are. And a lot of people, you know, in our culture just don't have education. There are so many well-meaning people. Uh, but when we don't have education, it's costly for all of our kids. Um, and then we see some additional costs that happen for underrepresented kids due to stigma and stereotyping about them at baseline, right? What I was noticing as I spoke with youth and even college age populations is just the differential penalization that was occurring with them. 
Um, and we see this also statistically. We know, for example, that uh, Black and, and youth from other underrepresented populations are differentially suspended from school, expelled for similar or less harmful behaviors. For example, a, a six-year-old little girl was arrested for aggressive behaviors by a police officer. Um, and I just, you don't see those same examples represented with other youth. There was another kid who was having a difficult day and something actually was going on in her family. She also was arrested. I believe this child was five. And that was a few months ago. And so uh, normal reactions to life's challenges, trauma and loss are met with penalties, not just, so um, it's one thing to have your experience not be acknowledged, right? Um, that's hurtful. Uh, but it's another when you are grieving a loss and your normal expression of uh, sadness or lethargy, you know, you're tired or uh, you don't feel well physically, is being treated with some penalty, whether it's isolation, whether um, you are differentially um, described as aggressive for the day or violent, and then you are expelled or suspended or removed uh, from your classroom and your learning opportunities. However, again, we see less frequent reports of uh, children being referred to a counselor for these losses. Uh, we see less frequent reports of how these children were given opportunities to, to deal with their losses or communicate with parents about these losses. We see much more cases of them being um, uh, dealing with penalties surrounding their emotional and physical and cognitive expressions of loss. Another example of suffocated grief is, you know, again, beyond hurt feelings and beyond lack of acknowledgement and recognition. ICU units, for example, are much more likely to cause security and the police, when black families uh, grieve a loss, they uh, black families and a lot of underrepresented families are more likely to show up in groups, which could be intimidating, but <laughs> we want the black pastor there or the clergy member there. And, and then you have, you know, extended family is huge and, and underrepresented families and in black families. So when they show up to ICU units, security is gonna be called because they're viewed as a threat. So at their time of loss, instead of just being able to be present with each other, a group of black people is perceived would be perceived as a threat. And if you, again, if you look at the research, penalized for normal grief reactions, it's okay to cry, but the tears of black people in hospital settings are viewed as threatening and disturbing and arrests have actually happened. Uh, recently presented uh, with my partner who's a physician in ICU, for example, about called security on call. And now more recently chaplains are being called uh, for you know, to, to get black families to acquiesce or quiet down. <laughs> I, we don't see those same penalties. We don't see any kind of penalty being applied when it's a majority culture uh, showing up to the ICU unit or to spaces. They're not perceived as threatening and it, their grief experiences are viewed as normal, right? So I kind of view it as a difference between kind of prejudice and discrimination. And so these penalties are discriminatorily applied. Prejudice is a thought process and discrimination is a behavior right that usually comes from from any given prejudice that anybody could really have well and just thinking about the idea that i mean here at, in portland many of our groups majority population people are talking about you know i don't feel safe expressing my grief because other people are going to get uncomfortable or they're going to judge me 
but it's a whole different level when it's I don't it's dangerous to express my grief because I could be on the receiving end of being arrested, getting expelled from school, tangible punishment happening for that grief expression. Absolutely. And so hence that takes us back to our initial discussion is that what you know, um, why would I show you my cards if you if you might take them from me, right? Um, I've written about this as well during when black families were separated during during the time of slavery um, and your loved one could be sold away at any day, given moment. Um, your teenager could be taken from you once they seem to be strong enough to do labor. You had to find a way to, if I'm contextualizing this, you had to find a way to survive. But so that, that coping mechanism of having to be strong, having to uh, regulate your emotions, you know, is something that is really reinforced in parenting you know, again, on the other hand, I do also want to send a, a hopeful shout out that there are many wonderful people who actually do recognize lost experiences of kids across the board and who are sensitive to the experiences of, of underrepresented youth. We just need more. <laughs> we need many more so that the statistics change and we don't see this disproportionate amount of, ex of expulsions and uh, this disproportionate amount of kids being put in, you know, being arrested in school to prison pipelines for that reason. Well, and thinking about like there's individual level change and then there's the systemic level, mm -hmm. institutional level change. And that, you know, leads me to the idea of, you know, at these points in interviews, oftentimes it's, okay, so what do we do? Which is a really hard question, I think, to ask and to answer and can sometimes distill it down a little artificially but I'm going to ask it anyways. <laughs> yeah, please you know do. It. Please know that my, my life is devoted to this work, Janet. You know, I haven't, again, I think we all need certain types of education. And then once we have that education, how might we use our different privileges, privileges and awful, if we use it to form alliances, right? And I'm all about how do we bridge gaps? How do we work together? You know, I'm a researcher who also likes to make sure people, practitioners have what they need to do the work. And I also appreciate practitioners sharing with researchers because people who are out there in the trenches, they actually are seeing and knowing and could totally inform the work that researchers are doing. And so one way that I think is really important in, in evoking change is, is for greater collaboration and conversations like those which you're creating right here in this space where there is an opportunity for educational opportunities for people who are working in different segments, right, of society to tell their stories and to share their work and then become partners. Like if you email me, I'll write you back, I guess I'll say, you know, <laughs> uh, my life is crazy, but, you know, I actually do write people back. And, and um, I do consider people who are listening as partners with me now. Right. Uh, just as I view you as my partner, Jenna, this already is a matter of justice. You've already participated in social justice. The other piece is, um, making sure people have the tools. Uh, so I created a program called SHED, Surviving, Healing, Evolving Through Death Loss uh, for schools and other organizations who work with youth. Um, and it's really designed toward systemic change. It's not the individual, it's the system that has, systems have to change, right? There might be one teacher who is incredible at loss, she's gotten education or he's gotten education. But if the rest of the school does not have that same tool, and if the policies at the school don't don't allow for children who are grieving to make up missed work. You know, many schools have policies that they support the holistic development of children. That's the, that's the division for the school. Yet, if you look at the policies, 
teachers differentially get to decide whether kids get to make up their work, right? <laughs> Systemic change looks at creating policies in schools and workplaces that allow for kids to have bereavement leave to attend a funeral, for example, or college students to have bereavement leave so that they can go to a funeral and not miss. I've worked with college students who've had to miss funerals because they would get penalized, right? If they were not there for that exam on that, that exam day. So you see the suffocated grief that I'm talking about. So finding ways to create, create and change policies in our programs and in schools and in workplaces that allow for the things that people need when they're bereaved, when they're grieving, that allow for a missed day, that allow for makeup work. We know that one thing that is missing that is that could actually make a huge difference in terms of us becoming allies, right? Shifting from maybe empathizers to um, people who are now a resource for other populations would be just to get more education on you know, culturally conscientious practice, like how to work with people, understanding that our knowledge about them will evolve, that we don't have to know everything, but a few things we should, we do actually need to know to work effectively with populations, right? Uh, and being able to be with people, right? Well, I think about the idea, you know, you've talked a lot about the idea of suffocated grief and how it can be suffocated from within, right? Like tamping mm -hmm. down the grief experience, but also suffocated from without of people responding in a way that says, it's not okay, I'm not open to this, and I might punish you for how you're expressing your grief. But then thinking about all the ways that the conversations can get suffocated and how important it is to let those come up and to be talked about. Yeah, and I, I'll just briefly mention the five A's of culture because when I, I do a lot of talks on cultural responsive practice, because I want people to be able to understand that your program can accommodate a lot of different populations. Um, it's a safe space to just work with the population that you're comfortable with. That's not going to challenge you to think about your social positionality, about, you know, your privilege. We all are privileged and marginalized in different ways. And I think tapping into our own, the own, our own spaces in which we're marginalized and, you know, trying to find that as a point of identifying with the person we're sitting across from. But the five A's of culturally conscientious I came up with, I'll mention them briefly. Um, one is acknowledging when a person describes their experience. I mean, at baseline, we should already be doing that in grief and loss, but knowing that um, there are mul typically multiple forms of oppression that people are experiencing, right? So if a child talks about his fears of being followed by a police, acknowledge that you just heard them say that. <laughs> um, a lot of people in underrepresented populations, you know, sometimes you can feel crazy because you know you just experienced this thing. And if everybody checks into what it feels like to be marginalized, because we all deal with some, some aspect of it, if you really truly tap into that, then you know you you probably made to feel crazy or your reality feels shattered about your experience. And that's to keep you oppressed, right? <laughs> to make you feel crazy. So when you experience something over and over, especially if it's a person of privilege who acknowledges it, it's empowering, right? This person gets it. It gives people hope. Next is ask. You know, if we're if we're not sure, if we feel like we're not clear, simply asking for clarity accepting the next a is accepting accepting that th that you don't know about this person's experience that you're going to learn about it while they're sitting across from you or while you're doing a program with them and being open to it next is a, a line right i think we can all be activists in different ways and um because this is really a social justice issue and i think we can all participate in it and it doesn't require a protest although those are cool too right there are ways that we can do things right in our 
you know, as a college student, I met Mary Frances Berry and I was like, what do I need to do? I was all pumped up, you know, like, do I need to go? I don't know. And she's like, read a book to a child, <laughs> right? It's not that complicated. <laughs> like in your, in your program, do you have books that represent kids of different backgrounds, different experiences, right? How are you, how can we demonstrate that we are an ally? Like we can all use privilege to, you know, um, reduce oppression or reduce the level of marginalization that people experience. So when I work with youth, I've said, you know what, instead of having that youth, that, that teen go write a letter, and we do talk about ways that they might write a letter to the legislator or whomever, I say, you know what, I'm gonna personally write a letter to the school system. I'm gonna personally write a letter to, you know, this organization or others so that they better understand X, right? So I've aligned and I've also shown them that I'm a part of the solution. I'm a part of this process that has been, you know, differentially focused on their experiences, bring their experiences to light. And then finally, my favorite, apologize. <laughs> apologize. Like nobody will know it all. Um, one of my favorite quotes is that's like think trying to, that's like assuming that we uh, can eat once and for all. That will never happen. My area is culture, but I'm constantly learning, right? I'm, and I'm open to it. So if let's say somewhere down the line, you realize this, this child wrote a whole poem talking about how they felt about a verdict that happened with the police and this, you know, who shot this police and, and is, was acquitted of all charges and that kid is writing about it. And you, we address everything but it, then say, you know what, I'm sorry. I reread your poem and I saw last week that you wrote about this experience. That took so much courage. I'm so sorry I missed that. I just want you to know I see you and I hear you. Those are the five A's and I've written about those and it's a simple process that is empowering for people, for both the person we're, people we're working with and for ourselves. So listeners, if you are trying to follow along there, we've got acknowledge, ask, accept, align, and apologize. Tashel, with, with doing this work for so many years, imagining that it has affected you on many levels of your life, is there an example of a way that what you've learned through your research shifts how you interact with youth? Like when you're sitting with a grieving youth, what are the things that you're saying? What are the things you're asking? What are the things you're thinking about that's directly from this work? I can say I've been, tra this work is always transformative for me. One is I really try not to impose a reality onto them. I, I, I tend to start out with just, general questions like tell me about your experience tell me your story about this loss that you've had the significant loss that you've had and quite frankly that's almost enough just with a lot of recognition of the things that they discuss uh, oftentimes people have a whole list of things they want to ask and the truth is sometimes we're asking just for our own purposes and sense you know and and trying to delve into that world but you know i i usually say you know, ask probes or, you know, follow up questions without probing for our own benefits. Mm. Right. Cause it can be like, it, it's a no, it's another world to know that a child just stepped over a dead body. Right. I talked to a lot of teens who now every time they go home, they see that same spot where a friend was killed or there are 10 spots on their routes home where they've seen where they know these are markers where people died. So they're living, they're surviving life and they're surviving death. And I think it's important to think about that, that beyond the funeral, these kids are returning to communities where these losses are still very visible for them, although they're invisible for the person who is just driving down that street from another community, right? So they're de dealing with ongoing losses, multiple across time. 
I'm, I've been forever transformed, probably the uh, most challenging for, experience for me, and I actually still grapple with it. One of my long-term research participants who I'd been talking to since he was 12 died of homicide, the very thing that I had been talking to him about. Uh, he fell right into statistics of dying in young adulthood at the time in which he was had already experienced the death of his brother and some serious injuries to another death by gun violence. Good kid. Uh, but in a challenging space without resources, everything I've just described. Uh, and he died a couple of days after I interviewed him uh, as a result of violence. He was shot over 22 times. That, I, it was really difficult, quite frankly, for me to, to do this work. I felt so, um, felt like I failed him. Uh, although I, I haven't, you know, I've continued to, as you see, do, do these type of conversations. I write about his experience. I, try to help people work with populations, um, but also knowing that systemically there were things that, that could have changed that may have reframed his life and the life of other kids. Because either we support them or they find other ways to channel this, this anger that is less pro-social, that leaves them less likely to contribute to families and societies in ways that help us. I got the alert on my watch actually when I was out of state and I knew it when I saw the alert, I keep up with violent death rates, I know I'm odd, but I get those alerts on my phone when things happen. So I, my life is very intertwined and lost uh, and trying to make sure people get support when these things happen. And I, I, that alert came to my phone and, um, and I could tell honestly from the tiny image that it was him uh, because of some certain identifying factors. Uh, and I just, I was quite frankly debilitated. It was hard for me to write about it. You actually see a gap even in some of my publications. It was really uh, challenging for me uh, and still, still is quite frankly. Um, I'm healing from that, but I've also had to incorporate self-care, which I strongly, strongly suggest to all people in this work, and and a network. Uh, I'm a I'm a member of I'm a I have a Forward Promise Fellow with the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, and it's really built around, you know, any funding or program in, in this area also needs to include support for people who are who are working with ongoing trauma, uh, and this fellowship allows for that. I'm surrounded by now a cohort of people who also do this difficult work with youth of color. Um, dealing with trauma and loss, and it's built around healing. We have retreats that help us heal. So I, I had to actively work toward healing. And this conversation, Jana, is, has also just been healing. Every time I'm able to get a space to highlight their experiences, I feel like one more person will be in the game now and will feel like they actually can do this work. I'm sitting with the, the idea of how your work is so much about identifying systemic barriers and systemic oppression that leads to disproportionate rates of grief and loss and violence and homicide. And then also thinking about the systemic supports that you are mm -hmm. seeking out and creating too for yourself and for others who are, you know, stepping in so closely with communities and then getting personally affected when people who are part of your research studies or communities that you're working with die or affected by violence. And so I don't know. I just hadn't really thought about it that way before. So I'm really appreciating that concept of it's not just about dismantling the barriers, but what are the systems we're putting in place that will provide support and equitable support? Yes. Tashel, as we get to the end of our conversation today, are there any last thoughts that you're wanting to share? Yes. I think that examples of hope give people hope um, to know that there's nothing too tiny that we can't do to be a part of this process. Honestly, when people die by homicide loss, it's costly for everyone. 
we spend millions of dollars, tax funding and monies on medical care and on prisons <laughs> that really could be uh, better used to serve our kids and by having supports in schools. Um, as I said, I developed shared grief tools really designed for all kids, but with a special, just a, one special unit on homicide and actually suicide. These more disenfranchising losses that people are going to be less likely to talk about and share about. When people see examples, that gives everybody hope. Um, you're my hope. Jana's my hope. Grief Out Loud is my hope right now. And when you're in spaces where you can speak up in terms of funding, because it's, this work is underfunded, uh, finding ways that we can fund this work so I can continue in it <laughs> and other people can continue in it uh, without that as a worry. Uh, and just thank you. I'm just really thankful. That's kind of the final thing that I want to say. Um, thank you for your work. I want to encourage you too, Jana. All of your questions were right on point. Usually I have to spend a lot of time in interviews trying to help people understand some of these basic things that you have been able to, you know, derive ahead of time. And to the listeners, thank you for those who listen to this podcast. Please pass it on to other people. Know that I'm a resource uh, and, I, and that I love collaboration. So thank you for what you're doing. Well, it's a child, you make it easy to have these conversations, which I really appreciate. And the questions came directly from the information I gathered from one of your trainings. So I felt a little like I was cheating. But. Well, no, that's okay. That's, that's okay. <laughs> So Tishelle, you so generously offered for listeners to connect with you. What is the best way for them to reach out to you? Um, one is I'm, I'm glad to list some of the things that I've written or other uh, sources of information that might just be helpful. A lot of times people just want, the, want some information that's tangible and in front of them. I've also written a book, co-edited and co-wrote a book with Darcy Harris on social justice issues and loss. Um, and if I'm in an area near you, I'm glad to, to come by and check out what you're doing if, you know, time permits. So I'm glad to be in a sense of, have a sense of community outside of that through communicating in other ways, phone, email. Fantastic. So Tichelle, thank you again for taking time for this, this conversation. I really appreciate talking with you today. Thank you. Thank you, Jen. It was a pleasure. And listeners out there, thank you for being part of our community. We really appreciate all the ways that you reach out to us and let us know that the show means something to you. So if you ever want to connect with me, you can reach me at help at Dougie.org. And we are produced by the Dougie Center in Portland, Oregon, which is a nonprofit organization. So we're 100% community funded. If you ever feel drawn to supporting the show or supporting our work, you can donate online at dougy.org forward slash grief out loud. There's a big blue donate now button. Thanks for listening and hope you'll join us again next time.